Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Olindo de Napoli. We are here today to discuss his newly published and co-edited volume, Citizens and Subjects of the Italian Colonies, Legal Constructions and Social Practices, 1882 to 1943, published in New York by Routledge 2022. He co-edited this volume with Simona Berge. Olindo, it is my honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for being so magnanimous as to participate in this dialogue with me. Thank you for your interest and for this kind invitation. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What events in your life inspired you to embark on your journey to become a scholar? Um, yes, um, about myself. I'm associate professor in modern history in what in Italy we call um, con- Storia Contemporanea, which does not correspond to contemporary history. So basically the history of the 19th and the 20th century. Uh, I, I, my history is a little bit strange because I, I got a, a degree in law, and uh, but I don't didn't want to 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 to, to become a lawyer, and so um, after the, my degree in law, I got a PhD in basically history. It, it was a PhD in analysis and interpretation of European societies in two thousand eight, two thousand and eight and a second PhD in history of law in 2013. Um, I have always been very interested in history and my initial interest was in uh, um, the history of the persecution of Jews during fascism. Indeed, my uh, degree thesis dissertation was on the racist laws issued by fascism against the Jews in the late 30s. Uh, after the, the two PhDs, I received fellowships uh, by different Italian and international institutions. Most remarkably, I was member of the School of, for Historical Studies of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, <clears throat> And I also have been visiting scholar at European at the European Institute at Columbia at Columbia University. Um, I work on different topics. Uh, my main research interest focuses on uh, legal history of colonialism and racism, and on the history of uh, criminal law. Um, I am member of a PhD board in global history and law at the Scuola Superiore Meridionale, which is a wonderful institution recently established established 
in Naples, in Napoli, my city. And also, uh, and finally, I work at the, I'm part of the editorial board of the journal Il Mestiere di Storico, the, 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 the job of historian, uh, which is the official journal of the Italian Society for Contempo for the Study of Modern History, let's say like that. I, I, I don't know if my answer That was wonderful. Your... Okay. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So thank you very much for this um this question. I, I think this this question is also is always central uh, when we uh, conceive a book, when we when we um, write the project a book project. So I think that colonialism is a very important topic in history, but sometimes it is described in simplistic terms. Indeed. Colonial power acted in different manners and with limited possibilities. Uh, someone has proposed for the colonial state the category of bula matari, which can be translated can be translated as stone crushing state. So the colonial state, the colonial power, in, in this case, is described as an administrative entity that behaves like kind of a Moloch that oppresses and ignores the requests coming from below. And it's just oppression for, for indigenous people uh, with no possibility for the natives to somehow oppose or have uh, interaction with, with, the, with the colonial power. Uh, in this view, the natives have no possibility of interaction if not those possibilities decided from above, namely by the white power that exploits them. Uh, whenever there is a conflict, the colonial state acts as a mere ruler and autonomous decision maker. So historiography has criticized the general view implied here. In particular, post-colonial studies have discussed the very idea of the modern state as a product of European history that was simply transported um, um, and uh, imposed on Eastern and African societies through colonial enterprises. A large part, a large part of these theoretical efforts is aimed at bringing to light the voice and the agencies of the, of the dominated ones that is of the subjects silenced by the official Eurocentric history. I was really curious to exploring how the Italian colonial state, or better, the Italian colonial power, tried to subjugate the indigenous population of its colonies, but avoiding this Eurocentric approach. In particular, on the one hand, I wanted to avoid the ideological a priori vision of a colonial power always strong and sure about how to regulate the relationship with indigenous people. Namely, I didn't want to neglect the weakness of the colonial power, its uncertainties and the inner debates which enabled, op enabled opposing views, which coexisted also in the case of Italian colonialism. And on the other hand, I wanted to give voice to native people. How did they conceive 
their own legal legal status? How did they strove to get strive to get or use the legal tools such as citizenship? How did they behave whenever they were ethnolinguistic minorities amidst, amidst larger colonial population? In a nutshell, how did they conceive of themselves and their political strategies? This book on citizenship and subjecthood in the Italian colonies is also an attempt to give voice to them, to their strategies. I spoke a lot about these problems with Simona Bere, my colleagues, who is a brilliant historian of colonialism and post-colonial societies, and is also a good friend of mine. And we agreed that our book should consist of two parts. A first part on how legal categories were conceived and constructed. And a second part about the social practices. Since she is not part of this conversation, I want to emphasize that this book could not have been so interesting as I think it is, or as I hope it is, without her contribution. And in general, it is the result of a real collaboration and an intense debate between the two of us and with all the authors. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, uh, this is this is a peculiar question, also because uh, as an historian, I try to explore the past uh, without confusing the past with the present. But to some extent, I have to admit that it can be impossible. I can say this. This book is about citizenship in contexts of inequality, inequality for matters of asymmetric power and and racism. I would say that citizenship, or more in general, what we can define regimes of belonging, are always a litmus paper which reveal something essential in a given society. For example, do you want to understand our society today? Looking at the different laws on citizenship might allow us to unveil many central questions. To what extent was racism a central element in the shaping of the legal status of colonial people and of their regimes of citizenship in the colonies? Thanks for this question. Racism was a central element in the construction of social hierarchies in the colonies and in the construction of different legal statuses. But it worked in different ways according to ideologies, according to peoples to be dominated, to the different peoples to be dominated, and also according to political circumstances, which can be surprising uh, if we expect to find always a sort of coherence between the ideological debates in the metropole and the actual policies in the colonies. Uh, so sometimes we don't we do not find this coherence and and also particular, very specific political circumstances can be um, important, can be relevant uh, in order to establish a kind of uh, regime of belonging, of citizenship, or another. As of the first point, so the point of uh, ideologies, no doubt that also in the so-called liberal age, concern 
concerns about race were at stakes in the colonies, especially those in the Horn of Africa, um, namely Eritrea and Somalia. Nonetheless, fascism enacted much clearer, clearer policies of segregation of colonial people. According to fascist proclamations, black people were definitely inferior to the Italians, and their inferiority could not be explained in terms of different stages of civilizations as the liberals did. Fascists believed that there were that there was a biological element to be intended in deterministic terms, which prevented any mingling between Italians and colonial subjects. Of course, this had tragic had a tragic impact, in particular on women and on the so-called mestizos, which in Italian are called metici. Nonetheless, there were some contradictions. After the Italo-Ethiopian War of 1935-36, Mussolini proposed to declare Italian citizens all the Eritreans because they they fought on the side on the side of the Italians against Ethiopia, against Ethiopia and against the Negus, the emperor of Ethiopia. Obviously, the proposal was dismissed, especially because after 1935, the fascist racism was clarified. After this racist and totalitarian turn of 1935-36, something like that, the so-called mixed blood children, whom Italians called Metici, were completely excluded from the Italian citizenship, precisely like all the black people. All of them could only be colonial subjects. The Metici, the Mestizos, were envisaged, were envisaged both as element of racial hybridization and as element of social disorder, political disorder. Racist and political reasonings resounded together in fascist ideologues. So, the mixed blood children were a problem both for biological um, concerns and for political reason, reasons. In other moments and at other latitudes, fascism showed different attitudes, which to some extent can be read through the lens of the category of the nationalizing nationalism. For example, in the Dodecanese, an Italian colony since 1911, the regime attempted to nationalize the Greek population. So did not try to exclude the Greek population from Italian citizenship, but to assimilate them. A specific form of imperial citizenship, the so-called Aegean citizenship, or more in general, what we, the Aegean citizenship based on the previous Ottoman legislation was conceived as a means for the integration and pacification, uh, what the fascists called pacification. So people of the Dodecanese were qualified as Italian citizens, but like in other colonies, their legal status was characterized by the exemption from military obligation and the lack of political rights. In particular, between 1925 and 1934, the official Italian plans reproduced aspects of the former Ottoman administration that had granted the the Dodecanese of a broad autonomy and privileges. One of the best essays of the book, of this book, 
it is the essay written by Luca Castiglioni, shows the fascist policies of assimilation towards the Greek, which aimed at severing the links of the local population, especially of the Greek community, to the rest of the Aegean space. In this case, the element of political concern on domination prevailed over racism. So Greeks were not object of racism, uh, but they must, they had to be loyal only to, to the Italian flag. And it was necessary to cut off all, all of their uh, bounds to other Greeks abroad. But after all, we can say the people of Dodecanese were not black. So racism somehow is always at stake. I'm not sure I... I hope I answer your question. Thank you. What does this book teach us about empire and imperialism? Uh, yes, I think this book uh, teaches, probably we can say that this book shows us two things in particular. First, I will be very synthetic. First, empires are very complicated political bodies that one cannot understand by only trusting the ideological representation proclaimed in the metropole. So we cannot describe, for example, the Italian Empire just uh, listening to what Italian intellectuals uh, told writing from their desktops in Italy, writing in the Italian journals. So the empire, the empires worked in very complicated ways. The imperial society, this is the first point, is quite complicated, is the sum of different forces and different agendas. And it is a colonial, it is a, an arena in which also the strategies uh, put in motion by colonial people must be considered. They have a place. Second, the legal elements are inextricably bound to the social reality of the colonies. So I belong to a, a, a branch of legal history which always um, tries to highlight how the construction of legal categories, the, 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 the movement of legal culture, of juridical culture is connected to what is going on was going on in, in the society. And so um, uh, the legal elements allow us to better understand what, how a colonial society is structured, how it could work. So, so I think that the, the, reading, the reading of this book can be very complex also because it's, it is a multi-authored book. But I think that um, this book can say something about the history of imperialism, um, especially can state that first, empires are very complicated. Second, to, to catch, to grasp this complexity, laws, the study of the laws and the legal structure can be um, decisive, fundamental. Can you tell us about Stanislaw Mancini? Italy's foreign minister in the early 1880s? 
Why is he notable? Yes, of course, uh, I'm glad to receive this question um, also because Mancini was the object of um, of my study for years. Um, Mancini was by far one of the most important intellectual, in, Italian intellectuals between the Risorgimento, the so-called Risorgimento, that is the phase in which um, Italian, Italian built uh, a national movement and the national uni unity that was reached uh, reached in, 19, in 1861. Uh, he was a jurist of great international prestige uh, who created, conceived, created the theory of the right of nationalities, which substantially coincides with the principle of self-determination of peoples, which would have received official international recognition after the First World War. So, it is a very important uh, intellectual if one wants to study uh, the theories of nationalism. Uh, but not only this, despite being a nationalist, Mancini was a man of the left. He was a, uh, a progressive politician. Politician. Uh, he, was, uh, uh, he pursued the idea of a walk, a path, toward a more civil society without violence and without war, what in the 19th century Italian um, was called incivilimento. And incivilimento is slightly different from civilization. It's, it's not something that we can translate into civilization. Um, uh, in 1882, Mancini once became Minister of Foreign Affairs started the Italian colonial expansion, sanctioning the Italian sovereignty over the bay of the little bay of Assab on the Red Sea. And it was not easy for him to justify this colonial acquisition because many years ago, as a jurist, he had strongly condemned the principle of conquest as it was an offense against the nationality. So it was a contradiction. There was a contradiction between the between Mancini, the theorist of the right of nationalities, and the Mancini Minister for Foreign Affairs. So he was called upon to justify his contradictions, and he answered that in Africa there were no nationalities. So the colonial expansion was not an offense to nationalities, just because in Africa there were no nationalities. Furthermore, Italian colonialism was legitimate because it was aimed at the civilization of peoples. A generous race was underway in Europe, a race to civilize Africa and Italy could not hold back. Mancini is the symbol in my eyes, in my view is the symbol of a progressive brand of colonialism full of contradictions. His idea was that the colonial possessions were part and parcel of the territory of the state and that the local peoples of the colony were perfectly, were perfect Italian citizens. Shortly after his death um, in 1888, Italian politics and also the world of jurists distanced themselves from that naive and incoherent vision and began to emphasize the aspect of domination 
more than the aspect of civilization. As a result, no one believed anymore that colonial people were or could be Italian citizens. On the other hand, Mancini's political action had been full of inconsistencies. He stated, for example, that colonial people were citizens, but he issued special laws that apply to them. So they were citizens, but the Italian laws did not apply to them. So it was a true contradiction. So I think that the, the figure of Mancini for a lot of reasons is, a, is central in the history of the study of citizenship in the colonies, at least in the 19th century. What is your book contribution to our understanding of Italy's occupation of Ethiopia? Uh, in the book, actually, there is only one chapter dedicated to this context, to the context of uh, Ethiopia between 1935 and uh, 1941. But this is a context that I myself largely explored in a book, in a previous book, and some articles. I also want to mention books uh, um, written by other authors as Silvia, Silvia Falconieri, who explored largely this topic. An interesting historical branch explored in particular the condition of black women, on which we have very good studies, such as those of Julia Barrera, Barbara Sorgoni, and others. Uh, the, essay in, the essay in this book, um, dedicated to, to Ethiopia, um, explores a very interesting topic, that of the Armenian minority living in Ethiopia and its change of legal status under the fascist rule. As Boris Tajemian shows, uh, in 1930, between 1930 and 1935, at the eve of Italian invasion, there were about 1,200 Armenians in the country, in Ethiopia. Armenians living in Ethiopia enjoyed a specific status in colonial perception of foreignness, as they were considered genuine co-religionists of the Ethiopian church, and as such, continuously employed by Ethiopian rulers. After 1936, Italian rulers were fully aware of the deep integration of Armenians in the local colonized society. Though they saw this minority as Ethiopianized, Ethiopianized they planned to utilize, to utilize the Armenian community as a tool for the expansion of the fascist influence of the Horn of Africa. Unlike the Greek subjects, Armenians had no formal citizenship at the time and were stateless. So they basically, after the Italian conquest, became stateless. Nonetheless, they often considered themselves as Ethiopian subjects. Fascist administration granted Armenians preferential treatment in Ethiopia, while Armenian individuals seen as sympathizer of the Ethiopian resistance were expelled, and some families were also deported after the assassination attempt against the viceroy Rodolfo Graziani in February 19. 37. So I would say that the study of uh, ethnic minorities like the Armenian one in colonial context is very interesting because it speaks of um, a flu fluidity of legal of, in the use of legal categories uh, that was typical 
of the colonial context, but it also speaks about uh, the, the demands of these minorities that wanted to be considered like citizenship citizens and wanted to enact the to enact to empower the rights. So what, what kinds of stigma did Italo-Eritrean children face in Catholic orphanages? So um, first of all, it is important to stay to say that there were a lot of uh, um, illegitimate children, mixed blood children, let, let's say like that. It's not um, um, a, be a beautiful war, uh, let's say mestizos in, in Eritrea. Between 1882 and the mid 50s of the, of the 20th century, um, uh, around 20% of illegitimate Italo-Eritreans have been housed in institutions run by missionaries. And I remember uh, old studies such as the, the pioneering book um, written by Angelo del Boca uh, stated that, um, that um, mestizos um, went on, uh, that, that um, mestizos were born also during the Italian occupation of Ethiopia when the mixed, the interracialized, the interracial relationships between Italian men and African women were officially banned. So a lot of mestizos um, featured the Italian presence in, uh, in, in the colonies. So um, around 20% of them were, um, were housed in institutions run by um, Catholic missionaries. Uh, some of them accessed the institution, uh, these institutions at birth, especially the orphans or children of prostitutes. Uh, others entered uh, when their fathers died or left Eritrea and their mothers often emigrated from poor rural areas were no more able to take care of them. Um, thus, children in such institutions had different social and familial backgrounds. Um, moreover, alongside those housed in institutions, other illegitimate Italo-Eritreans resorted to them to have free access to Italian education and for the soup kitchen. Uh, an historian like Giovanna Trento explains that according to some interviews that she conducted in Eritrea, Italo-Eritreans grown up in Catholic orphanages had good or very good memories of their stay of their lives in those institutions, despite some mentions about uh, them being fruit of the pity, fruit um, of uh, illicit relationships. In our book, Valentina Fusari uh, shows that the double stigma deriving from being from being mixed and abandoned was and abandoned was not a disadvantage in itself mainly because the human and social capitals developed in institutions might be capitalized to access European citizenship, to access European education. Indeed, some of them uh, managed to transform their stigma and mobilize social and economic resources to access Italian citizenship. Such resources mainly came 
right from their experience in orphanages. Therefore, institutions can be understood as transformative spaces, as Valentina Fusari states, where through education and socialization that were part of the colony's domestication process, Italo-Eritreans experienced better condition that then Italo-Eritreans raised uh, out of these institutions. What kinds of barriers existed between Italians and Eritreans in colonial Eritrea? What kinds of barriers did Italy impose on the interactions between local Eritreans and Italian settlers? So, Italy over time imposed many different regulations of the interaction between Eritreans and Italians living in the colony. Indeed, in the, in the colonial context, the politicization of the private sphere was particularly strong, involving pervasive attention to interracial relationships. But social control could be, in some, in some places, feeble under, cer- under some, certain conditions. Therefore, what kind of relationship of relationship one had with locals who must be dominated people was a relevant political affair since the liberal age, not only during fascism. In particular, it was politically relevant, the question of interracial couples and the question of homosexuality. There is a lot uh, written on this topic by now, uh, a quite vast literature to which I myself contributed. But the ongoing lamentations uh, by the rulers, by the Italian rulers, or the, repos- or the reproposition in different ta- at different times of urban plans of segregation can also be seen as a partial failure of this idea uh, um, conceived in the metropole, in the metropole uh, to separate the two categories of peoples. When Mussolini started to worry about the interaction between the Italians and the locals, he exclaimed that it was a shame to see Italian men constantly going in and out of Tukuz. That was the name of the typical uh, houses in uh, in, uh, in Abyssinia. So uh, it it mean, this means that. The, the, the plan of uh, urban segregations not, not always worked very well. Um, this shows not only that colonial policies were often less effective than what ideologies, shows, ideology, ideologies show, but also that local peoples had and continued to possess their own agencies and their capability to interact with the presumed dominators. A new, more severe and racist legislation was enacted after 1936-1937 and throughout the last year of fascism, during the phase which historians have described as the moment of radicalization or totalitarianization of fascism. But also in this period, historiography has questioned the the effectiveness of such legislation, It is a quite complicated question. How did Italy's colonial presence in Eritrea evolve and unfold? So thanks for this question. This is a topic, a very interesting topic that I studied a bit. Uh, 
in its first years, the community of Italian inhabitants in Eritrea was tiny. In 1893, Italians were little more than 600. And in 1913, their number increased to 2,400 people. In 1921, the Italians were still few, mounting at 3,800 plus 300 other Europeans. Against an indigenous population of almost 600,000 individuals. In 1931, the Italians were little more than uh, 4,500 against um, 600,000 natives. In Italian Somalia, um, officially a colony uh, in 1908, in that same year, the Italians were fewer, were uh, 1,600 against a larger indigenous population of more than a million. So plans for mass migration of Italian nationals to the colonies existed, always existed, at least uh, since the, 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 the end of the 19th century, but all failed. And only fascism could establish vast colonial settlements, both in Libya and Ethiopia, from, but only from the late 30s. More interestingly, an unbalanced, an unbalanced ratio between males and females stood out. For example, in 1931 in Eritrea, the, Italian, the Italians were 62% uh, males and a little bit more than 37 females, while in Somalia the, the ratio was even more unbalanced with eight 80% of males and 20% of females. In both cases, in the number of, femi of females, the, dom the dominant element was that of married or widowed women, more than half in the case of Somalia. Thus, women went to the colony, Italian women went to the colony basically to follow their husbands. According to a colonial official, Alberto Pollera, this unbalanced ratio increased the number of mixed race children, which aroused the concern of rulers, missionaries, and tourists. The unbalanced gender ratio lasted in the last years of the Italian colonization when great project, projects of mass settlement in neighboring Ethiopia started. Uh, projects which implied the mass transport of Italian women and also of Italian prostitutes. For example, in November 1940, in Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, there were 40,000 Italian males against 11,000 females. So the, the unbalanced ratio um, went on. In the first years until the defeat of Adwa in 1896, the political organization in Eritrea was largely dominated by the military element. All the, governor, all the governors were generals. And even when a kind of hybrid institution was established, that of the civil and military governor that was established in 1890, uh, a, general, a, a general was in charge of it. Only in 1897, a civil governor was in charge. 
His name was Ferdinando Martini, who was a man of letter, a writer, and previously had been a fervent opponent of Italian colonialism. This was a sort of colonial conversion for Martini that had been um, a fervent opponent of Italian colonialism. His predecessor, General Oreste Baratieri, had established a real military dictat dictatorship in Eritrea. After 1922, Martini lived another conversion, the conversion to fascism, even though in 1919, he had tried to be elected in a democratic party. So this very synthetic um, picture, uh, I, I must apologize, but your question is very complicated. So I, I can just uh, give a, a synthetic picture, um, describes uh, the, 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 pre the preeminence of the military element in the history of the Italian colonization uh, in Eritrea. Um, and of course, when fascism um, took power, um, so uh, the, the, the colonial administration were even, administrations were even um, more authoritatives, authoritarians, authoritatives. No, no. What was the Consiglio Superiore Colio Coloniale? Coloniale, yes. So very quickly, the Consiglio Superiore Coloniale which we can, we can translate into High Colonial Council, was set up in, was a, a body of the state, of the Italian state, set up in 1923 to centralize and standardize the activity of the various pre-existing advisory bodies in matter of colonialism. So it worked only on the topic of colonialism. So uh, this institution, uh, the fact that fascism in 1923 established this political body, this body uh, uh, is very meaningful because it means that fascism thought that the question of colonialism and the question of the uh, colonial policies, what they called, the, and also what they called the indigenous policies, were very central for the future of the nations, of the nation. Um, so the, the opinion of the of the Consiglio Superiore Coloniale, uh, the opinions were relevant to the establishing of colonial policies in different fields. And along the book, we encounter uh, this uh, body because it worked about the topic of citizenship. What is your book's contribution to the historiography of Italian rule in Libya? Um, yes. Uh, I think uh, this book speaks a lot about Libya. It could only be like this, as colonial Libya represents one of the most formidable examples of the complexity of the colonial domination. A colonial domination of which different agendas were at stakes and was also a laboratory of different regimes of citizenship. From the so-called Libyan statutes of 1919, which established a Libyan citizenship that envisaged civil and political rights for the local population, to the fascist regulations after the brutal repression of the anti-colonial resistance and the implementation of policy of mass settlement from Italy. So these policies involved the segregation of Libyan people. These fascist policies involved 
the segregation of Libyan people out of the coastal regions. Yet fascism strove, fascism strove to represent itself as a protector of the Muslims and constructed a representation of a collaborative power that want, which wanted to involve the local notables in a sort of Italian-Libyan citizenship. It is not a case that Libya is central in almost four essays in this book. It is examined, examined also with regard to the administration of justice, which had to take account of different levels and kinds of norms with what is linked to the broader topic of legal pluralism, which revealed a nodal point in the study of colonial societies. The Italian contribution to the theory, to the theory of legal pluralism was remarkable, as at the beginning of the 20th century, the man, the man who was probably the most powerful jurist of fascism, Santi Romano, elaborated the so-called institutional theory of law. Finally, the case of Libya is relevant also from the social history viewpoint, because as my friend Simona Bere always recalls, Cirenaica and Tripolitania under the Ottoman rule, under the Ottoman Empire, were provinces, while under the Italian rule became colonies. As Roberta Perger's essay here in this book shows, the question of citizenship confronted the fascists not only in the newly reconfigured Libyan provinces, but also in other recently acquired border regions to the north and indeed throughout Italy. The, gradation, the gradations of citizenship implemented in the colonies, the regime increasingly based decisions about right, rights and status, not on citizenship, but on distinctions of race, ethnicity, and religions were at stake. The general framework to be emphasized is that of the post-Wilsonian international order, according to which having national peoples living in the colonies was fundamental, fundamental in order to get and maintain the sovereignty. This, one, this was one of the obsessions of the fascist regime, which wanted to realize vast plan vast plants of colonial settlements in Libya, as well as in the Horn of Africa, in the Horn of Africa, sorry. How did World War I impact Italian rule in Libya? So World War I had a strong impact on Libya, as two chapters of this book show, namely that of Federico Cresti and that of Roberta Perger. During the war, Italy basically could not govern the three regions could not rule the three regions of Cyrenaica, Tripolitania, and Fetzen. Different resistance movements took hold, and the Italian rule showed weak. The strong anti-colonial readership led Italy to reconfigure its rule on a different basis. Indeed, Libyans had lived a form of degradation, passing from the status of citizens of the Ottoman Empire to that of Italian colonial subjects. Some historians, has, some historians have termed the political phase after the end of World War I as a political spring from which two laws derive. These laws uh, are called statutes, the statuti libici, uh, which 
recognized wide participation and political rights to Libyans. So, but the impact of, of World War I was greater and more enduring because as Berger explains in this book, the post-World War I era prized national self-determination and the concomitant idea that nations were naturally given entities whose members belonged, belonged equally and naturally. Nationalists had coupled citizenship to national belonging already prior to the First World War. Still, it was the outcome of the war and the Paris Peace Treaties that gave the national state widespread legitimacy as the natural unit of statehood and that considered national belonging as the natural basis of citizenship. At this point, after 1922, fascism understood that it was necessary to move born Italians to the contested borderlands and to the colonies to somehow nationalize them, to nationalize these colonies, these contested borderlands. In this view, citizenship and mass settlement policies were instrumental to the expansion of national sovereignty. As Christie maintains, as Federico Christie maintains, World War One was a real watershed. Can you tell us about Italo Balbo? What does your book reveal about him? How is he understood in new light through the lens of your book? Yes. Uh, okay. Balbo was a very important leading figure of fascism. He was a gerarca, one of the founders of the fascist movement in the Po Valley. Uh, sometimes he was more extreme than Mussolini himself. He was Minister of, of Aeronautics and personally directed some Mediterranean and two Atlantic cruises as General of the Air Squadron. He was appointed Governor of Libya in 1934, and this, and this is the reason why he is so important in our history. Uh, uh, in 1934, um, or by now, um, the, 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 the situation of Libya had been pacified, to use, uh, just to use a terrible word uh, that fascists used. Uh, namely, this means that um, the, the Libyan resistance had been exterminated. And this appointment, governor of Libya, was seen by some and by himself as a ploy by Mussolini to remove a dangerous rival from Rome. So he was gaining such influence that Mussolini saw him as a, a rival. It is remarkable that in October 1938, Balbo posed to the racist laws against the Jews. And in general, he did not share the philo-German orientation of fascism after 1937. At least at the beginning, he didn't share this uh, orientation. As promoter of settler colonialism, he strongly worked to reinforce the segregation of Libyans. As explored in a recent, in a recent article written by Andrea Tarchi, Balbo appeared open to a nominal inclusion of the colonized population of Libya within the metropolitan body, body politic, 
but he never once spoke of equality between the Italian settlers and the Libyan citizens. In a colonial context where the, construct, the constructed differences between settlers and colonized could not be delineated in terms of wealth, social status, and color, as Libyans and Italians both belonging, belonged to a sort of Mediterranean race, which Mussolini himself, himself theorized in the early 20s, the enforcement of street racial bond, boundaries became essential to the organization of the settler society. So uh, the figure of Italo Balba is central in this book because he worked, he strongly worked, worked to reinforce the, 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 the policies of mass segregations of Libyan peoples. Uh, the, the repeal of the so-called Statuti Libici, which had given a great uh, political rights to Libyan people. The repeal of these laws had happened in 1923, many years before uh, Italo Balbo uh, became governor of the colony. Um, it was only some years later, when a new world conflict was approaching, that the Italian government discussed and approved the proposition of the governor Italo Balbo for a new Italo-Libyan citizenship which was called Cittadinanza Italo-Libica. In 1939, the regime's propaganda diffused pictures of the awarding of diplomas of a colonial citizenship that were distinct from the metropolitan one, reserved for a restricted part of the population. But there, were, but there was no longer talk of the population's particip participation in decision-making or political bodies as it was in 1919 for the so-called Statuti Libici. As Roberta Perger explains, there was no place for a new season of the statutes of the Statuti Libici. Shortly thereafter, the era, the era of Italian control over Libya would end forever uh, because of the war, of the Second World War. But fascist Libya represented a sort of laboratory of citizenship. Nominally, Libyans were not colonial subjects as the peoples of the Horn of Africa, but citizens. In my opinion, in this formal difference, we can see the role of racism. What was the situation of Maltese Christians, Armenian Christians, Greek Christians, and other non-Italian Christians? in Italy's empire, how were Maltese, Greeks, Armenians, and other non-Italian Christians treated by the Italians? So it is a very interesting question. So Greeks in the, in the Dodecanese and the Maltese in Libya faced quite similar policies. The Maltese diasporic community residing in Tripoli had multiple loyalties to the island of origin, to the British government, to the religious authorities, they went beyond that went beyond the narrow space of the colony, crossing its borders, and this was felt as a danger by the fascist elites. In this context, Italy's assimilationist policies toward the Maltese people aimed at 
breaking this dense network of bonds and solidarity that projected the Maltese beyond the colonial space, the Libyan colonial space. It is not, this situation is not so different from what fascism did to Greeks uh, in the Dodecanese. The Greeks could be assimilated, but there was the relevant question of cutting off their, their other loyalties. Fascism in itself was not a Christian religious movement, by the way, because it was based upon the religion of the nation and the cult of the Duce, of Mussolini. But sometimes Christians could be assimilated to, to, to the Italians, provided that they were not contaminated by other nationalities' agents. But, it was not, but this was not possible for the Christians of Eritrea and of Ethiopia, of course, for reasons of racism. In a diary published, uh, in a diary written in 1936 and 1937, that I discovered, an official of the Italian army describes all the atrocities that Muslim soldiers fighting on the Italian side committed against priests and monks in Ethiopia during the fascist invasion. It did not, it did not represent a problem for fascist elites. Who was Santi Romano? What does his institutionalist theory on the plurality of legal systems say? How is it helpful to understanding the history of Italian colonialism? Yeah. Uh, Santi Romano was president of the Council of State and was the major Italian scholar of public law of the fascist time. <laughs> he was the first to clearly perceive the crisis of the state uh, in the 20th century. In 1917, he developed his theory of the institutions from a realist perspective in an essay titled L'ordinamento giuridico, the, so the, the legal system. For the Italian jurist, for Santi Romano, the state was not the only legal system because there were se several other social systems that could be perfectly considered legal systems. For instance, political parties, sports associations, trade unions, and even criminal associations. These organizations were independent and autonomous entities, but lived under the umbrella of the state's power. The state, in turn, could decide which of these social legal entities were indifferent to or were against its power. However, this evaluation concerned only the, effect the effectiveness of these legal systems with respect to the state, but did not affect their effectiveness in itself. According to Romano's theory, a legal system existed every time a social system met three requirements. So a people, so plurisubjectivity, two, organization, and three, regulation. Uh, however, although all these legal systems could coexist, one of them must be in a dominant position. According to Romano, from a juridical point of view, the state occupied a leading position because it was the only entity that had sovereign, sovereign power and was the sole guardian of the people's general interest. And this was called 
institutionalist theory. Uh, it, it was part of a broader wave, which can be termed as legal pluralism, and that has been important for colonial studies, as the last issue of the historical journal Quaderni Fiorentini, for example, shows. In this book, the, 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 the essay written by Carlo Bersani explores uh, the influence of Santi Romano on the body called Colonial Council, um, Consiglio Superiore Coloniale, about the regulation of citizenship in the colony. In a nutshell, required, when it was required of an opinion about the eventual conferral of Italian citizenship on Libyans, Romano stated that granting by law metropolitan citizenship to all those belonging to the colony would have been such a novelty in the history of European colonization as to upset both the metropolitan order and the colonial one, and would have threatened, threatened the unity and homogeneity of the Italian nation, I quoted. Romano was the most authoritative voice that established that colonial people should not become citizens. Can you describe the history of Italian regulation of citizenship in the Dodecanese islands? Yes, very quickly. The Italian islands of the Aegean, Isola Italiana del Leggeo, um, namely the Dodecanese, were an extra-metropolitan territory inhabited by European populations, with no chance for fascism to establish, like in the African colonies, boundaries based either on racial difference or cultural inferiority. A specific form of imperial citizenship, the so-called Aegean citizenship, based on previous Ottoman legislation, was conceived as a means for the integration and pacification. Uh, people of the Dodecanese were qualified as Italian citizens, but like in other colonies, their legal status was featured by the exemption from military obligations and the lack of political rights. Article 30 of the Treaty of Lausanne stated that uh, on 6 August 1924, all Ottoman subjects uh, settled on the islands would become Italians, while Article 34 stated that those living abroad, namely in any country except Turkey, could opt for Italian subjecthood, subject to the consent of the uh, Italian government. Thanks to this last clause, the Italian authorities denied the right of option to the majority of the, of the Dodecanesians living abroad. Those communities had particularly active um, in the irredentist campaigns of the previous year and were therefore consider, considered largely composed of hostile elements. The guideline given to Italian consulates was therefore to accept only application from people desirable, I'm quoting, desirable in every respect, end of quote. In this way, Aegean naturalization was established as both an instrument of repression and political promotion, as the essay written by Filippo Spinoza explains in our book. In sum, by confirming small citizenship to the optants, the, this decree also showed 
a certain openness towards new ways of understanding Italianness, although in an exceptional and transitory way, at least as far as people residing in territories affected by programs of informal imperialism were concerned. So as in other contexts, uh, people of the, of the Dodecanese um, were um, assimilated. I would say the fascist government tried uh, to assimilate them, but was really uh, worried about other Dodecanesians living out of uh, the, the Dodecanese um, because of their dangerous uh, bounds with the other national loyalties. What was the Bertolini Code? Why is it significant? Sure. The Bertolini Code. The Bertolini Code, formed by two decrees of 1933 and 1914, aimed at governing Libya with the cooperation of the indigenous chiefs. However, the administrative structure it created heavily contradicted, contradicted this premise. Even the local councils provided for aiming at allowing the Libyan population a legitimate expression of opinions and aspiration to which the reforms recently introduced by the Turkish regime had even called it, and the quotation, came into operation late and did not promote real political participation. The system foresaw a bureaucratic structure where the functions entrusted to native population were completely irrelevant in the decision-making sphere and subjected to a strict control. With the new code, the few representative bodies and collegial decision-making bodies previously existing under the Ottoman administration disappeared, while the supposed representatives of the population were appointed in reality by the governor. Ultimately, the Bertolini Code, uh, as Simona Bere explains, did nothing but sanction the state of minority characterizing the condition of the Libyans, confirming the law already defining the character of subjecthood of the native population, namely the Royal Decree uh, of 6 April 1913. According to this decree, all people born in Tripolitanian Cyrenaica before November 1911, which was the date of an accession to Italy, were Italian subjects if they had no different citizenship by the Ottoman laws. So were people born after the annexation, sons of Italian subjects of those territories, on the condition that they, that they were not already Italian of or foreign citizens. Women acquired this status through marriage with an Italian subject. The decree stated that this subject kept their personal status enjoying civil and political rights by the laws concerning it. As for the military service, they could volunteer in the land and the sea forces. Uh, the reference to the respect of the personal status of the subjects, namely the family and inheritance laws defined by the Sharia jurisprudence for the Muslim and by the Talmudic rules for the Jews could not diminish 
the threatening shadow of the subsequent state statement according to which the civil and political rights of Libyan subjects would be dictated by specific laws. So the Bertolini Code allowed um, the existence of, a, of an exceptional legislation which appeared to, on the horizon, a, leg, a special legislation uh, which <coughs> denied a priori the equality between the subjects, citizens of the Italian state, as well as the maintenance of the civil and political rights already enjoyed in the framework of the Ottoman, of the Ottoman state. In short, the Bertolini Code from the, very, from the very beginning of the Italian domination in Libya denied the idea of equality between Italians and Libyans. It was something of which the Italians would have repent soon because of the war, of the happenings of the First World War, because of the Libyan resistance, and because of the new political orientations in in the end, during the end of the liberal of the liberal age, which will lead to the so-called Statuti Libici in 1919. What was unique about Italian rule in Albania? Oh, this is a, um, thanks for this question. Yeah, this is very interesting. The Italian rule in Albania was all in all very peculiar as a couple of recent books show. I will put in this way, Albania was de facto a colony but formally it was not a colony. Indeed, from a legal standpoint, from a formal standpoint, it was Albania was a distinct kingdom that had been united to Italy because after it was conquered by Italy in 1939, the crown of Albania was given to the king of Italy, Vittorio Emanuele III. As Giovanni Villari explains in this book, pretending to live a militarily conquered state independent helped the regime's, the regime's propaganda to emphasize the civilizing mission of fascism. The personal union of the, of the two crowns, the crown of Italy and the crown of Albania in the hands of Vittorio Emanuele III was one of the peculiarities of this model of colonialism, which entailed ambiguities in the management of power. Albanians became citizens of the fascist empire. Albania received some privilege in matters of citizenship, and some Albanians, not, some Albanian notables were also appointed to the Senate and the Chamber of Fascia and Corporations in Rome, a real novelty in the history of Italian citizenship. These norms would strengthen the, I quote, spiritual union between the two peoples and show the diversity of fascism from other imperial nations. This is, this is what fascist ideologues uh, uh, wanted. Rep this is how fascist ideologues uh, represented these uh, laws. If this was the propaganda facade, in reality, the war events soon created mutual mistrust and progressive increase in tensions. Growing anti-Italian sentiments influenced the exercise of rights, and just a few growing anti-Italian sentiments influenced 
the exercise of rights, and just a few Albanians really benefited from formal citizenship. In what ways was fascism a continuity of previous iterations of colonial policy in Italy's possessions? Or in what ways was fascism a new and distinct phenomenon? To what degree did Mussolini's fascism carry on in Italy modes of behavior that were previously undertaken in the imperial colonies? Or to what degree was Mussolini's fascism something different? Thanks. Some historians have maintained that there are many elements that show continuity between the liberal governments and fascism on the topic of colonialism not only because many members of the liberal elite converted into fascism, and among them many colonial officials, but also in terms for, for matters regarding the ideology. For example, the ideology of settler colonialism, namely the supposed use of the colonies as place where the government could redirect the flows of Italian immigrants in order to grant them the, to live in a place dominated by the Italian flag was typical already of the liberal age, but was empowered later by the fascist regime. In this perspective, fascist colonial policies inspired to a more radical nationalism, but already in the liberal age, nationalism was at stake, as well as the image of a great proletarian country that needed its vital space was at stake. So according to this vision, uh, fascism represents a sort of radicalization of uh, a nationalistic attitude that was already at stake uh, during the liberal era, okay? Nonetheless, I think that it would be a great mistake interpreting fascism solely as the radicalization of pre-existing uh, projects or ideologies. In many aspects, fascism created something new. If we look, for example, at the discipline of citizenship in the colonies, in Libya, fascism completely dismissed the regulation conceived after World War I, the so-called Statuti Libici. Also, the idea of racism was intended by fascism in brave new terms. And when the so-called manifest of Italian scientists stated that, Italian was, that it, the Italians were Aryans and, the, and that Italian racism should be conceived in, uh, um, in, uh, only in uh, a biological term, this was something new, and uh, was in, in, in it was very different from what the majority of Italian intellectuals thought during the liberal era. Furthermore, it is true that in the liberal age, nationalistic attitude, attitudes were at stake, but the liberal age itself was much more complex than this. In general, and it is one of the virtues of this book, legal history thanks to its technical approach and its technical elements, can help us understand the distinctiveness of fascism. How did Italy differentiate between citizens and colonial subjects 
what was the substantive content of these different terms and what were the consequences and ramifications of these two different categories? Yes, it's very easy to argue that establishing that Black peoples of the colonies were colonial subjects and not citizens meant that they had fewer rights and their participation in the public sphere was not possible. But the analysis of the birth of the legal category of colonial of the so-called colonial subjectshood shows some problems to these reconstructions, to this reconstruction, because in the late 19th century, speaking of citizenship did not imply the recognition of political rights, even for the Italians. So the great majority of the Italians could not vote, did not possess political rights. Uh, at least not the political, at, at least not the, the voting right. Uh, at the beginning of the Italian domination, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Pasquale Stanislao Mancini, defined the people of the acquired lands as new Italian citizens. But very soon this sentence was emptied of meaning and then contested. When at the beginning of the 20th century, the legal category of colonial subjecthood was officially established in Eritrea, the problem was not the voting right, but the delimit that was not envisaged, not, not even for the Italians, but the delimitation of legal systems and jurisdictions. It should be clear that to native people, a different law and different jurisdictions applied. This idea was termed as differentialism, differentialism. And it was based upon the idea that the Italian law was superior to the African laws, to the Libyan laws, but could not apply to natives of Africa, to the, to the indigenous peoples of Africa, because they were at a lower stage of civilization. As I wrote, this politics somewhat contradicted the narration of an Italian legal civilization that expanded through colonialism. No Italian legal uh, civilization expanded through colonialism because Italians did not apply their uh, legal system to colonial subjects. Along with Japan, Italy did not envisage a legal path for indigenous people to acquire the Italian citizenship, so that it was possible only, so, so that the acquisition of the, Itali the full Italian citizenship for uh, indigenous people, for local people, was possible only uh, in, exceptional, in exceptional cases through special decrees of the national government. In any case, it was clear that colonial subjects were inferior to Italian citizens, be it for stage of civilization or for race. And special norms regulated the relationships between the two populations in the colony. After 1936, these norms became increasingly racist, despite concerns for international contacts were strong also in the liberal age. The regulation of the international couples featured by stability confirms this element. Only after 1937, they were completely banned, despite, previous, despite the fact that previously there already was political anxiety on the topic. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, 
Can you tell us about the work you've been doing since this project has been behind you? Where has your attention gone? Okay, so um, I have two projects. So thanks for this question. Uh, I'm um, finishing a book of which I'm quite enthusiastic. Uh, it is a book about uh, the history of colonial deportation in uh, Italy during the uh, so-called liberal era, uh, namely between 1861 and 19 and 1900s. So mm -hmm. this is a so the, the history of colonial deportation is really an exciting topic because it is at the crossroads between um, the history of criminal law, penal law, criminal law, and colonial history. So it was the idea of the deporting um, criminals from Italy to other uncivilized lands, um, to colonies, um, for different reasons, uh, which I analyzed in the book, that is a huge book, and will be published uh, at the beginning of the next year. So um, the second project I am working on um, is uh, a project on um, a, a comparison between um, between different colonial powers. So I am principal investigator of a project financed by the Italian government um, uh, on what we called um, the late commerce, the late commerce uh, imperialistic powers uh, that, that were basically Japan, Italy, Belgium and Germany. Um, these four powers were uh, the 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 late, the late um, colonial empires um, that arrived at that arrived uh, in the colonial enterprise in the end uh, of the 19th century. And so this is um, a comparative project, and I am very happy to that um, wonderful colleagues will work with me, along with me, to this project. People such as uh, Giacayotti, Andrea Revenant, and Paolo Fonsi, uh, with which I'm very eager to work. Thank you for sharing that. That sounds like an absolutely amazing project. Um, I wish you the best of luck with that. And it just sounds absolutely fascinating and extremely important and necessary. So I wish you only good luck in your research and preparation process. Thank you very much. Thanks. As we end our dialogue today, I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Olindo de Napoli. He is Associate Professor of, in Modern History at the University of Naples, Federico II. We have been in dialogue regarding his newly edited book, Citizens and Subjects of the Italian Colonies, Legal Constructions and Social Practices, 1882 to 1943. He has co-edited this book with Simona Berge. This book was published in 2022 by Routledge Publishers. Thank you for your time, attention, and erudition as it was expressed in our dialogue today. Thank you for all the wisdom and eloquence that you shared with me and with 
our listeners. Thank you, Ari. Too kind of you.